Good. Okay. So we are going to be doing Thursdays today at noon. So thank you for tuning in or watching this. Uh, we're going to go ahead and start. We're, we are going to read um, our text, and then I will begin. So we're going to be at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. So we're going to finish chapter 1 today, uh, which is good, and then we're going to keep moving on. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 says this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the, pow- like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to start. So let's pray. God, we thank you again for the chance to, uh, to have your word in front of us um, and opened and be able to read it. I pray that you would uh, be with my words, that I would speak clearly, um, that I would uh, not err. And if I do, that you would um, keep it from being heard. Um, I pray that you would open our hearts to understand that we would love you, um, that we would love our brothers in Christ. Help us to see the gospel and to understand um, how to live and to love one another as you've loved us. In your sins, let me pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to start off just thinking about the Old Testament. So um, specifically, God gave Israel, his covenant people, uh, 613 commands. Um, that includes like the Ten Commandments. That includes uh, laws about how to function as a people and moral reasons and how to interact with the temple and what to do and not do and um, how to dress and all these different ways to function as a people. And it was God's way um, to set apart his people to look distinct. Um, it was God's way to set them apart, to have them for himself so they would be holy and for him. So the, the purpose of the law was actually to show them um, our sinfulness um, and to show uh, the, the Jews their sinfulness and to show them how to approach God and how they have a need to approach God by um, something dying. There needs to be a certain way to approach God. You can't just walk up to him and say, hey, how's it going? You need to approach him in a holy manner. You need to understand that we are sinful. So all the laws are meant to show that God is holy, that God is good. And that he demands that we approach him properly. Um, and over time, what would happen is the Jewish teachers, which are typically called Pharisees, we call them, uh, they began to create laws to follow these 613 laws. So they made laws for laws. Um, and this is it's in a book called the Midrash. Sound like a rash in your mid-section. <laughs> uh, this is a series of sayings and sermons and like clarifications uh, about how not to sin um, by keeping the law. So here's just a quick example of what they would do. Uh, so one of the laws that God gave that were very well known is you shall, cap, you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. So on the Sabbath, you're supposed to rest from work. Uh, you're supposed to not engage in your normal day, but take a day off and rest. Enjoy God's creator and as your ultimate rest. That was the point. And what these Pharisees did is they would make all those laws to find what the word work means. So here's what they would do. So on the Sabbath day, you can't work. So these men had the, the idea to say, well, this is what work is. So here's the rules that they made uh, to supplement God's law. Uh, you could not bake on the Sabbath. You couldn't bake anything. And you could not set up or put out a fire because that would cause you to sweat. Therefore, you'd work. Therefore, you'd sin on God's day, right? Um, you couldn't, if you're going to write something down, you couldn't write two or more letters. It had to be just one letter. That was it. You couldn't erase two letters at all. You, had to only, you could only write one. And even they had laws about how many steps you could actually take. So they're really, really meticulous on how you looked and how you acted and what you did. 
And now if you take that context and you go to the New Testament when Jesus is around, um, you would notice that Jesus would constantly say, uh, he would battle with the Pharisees. There would always be some kind of war going on. And there's a really specific one in Mark, in Mark chapter 7. You don't got to go there. I can kind of fill you in. Uh, where the Pharisees get angry at Jesus because his disciples did not wash their hands before they ate. Uh, they made another law on a law to say, hey, you have to wash your hands a certain way. It needs to be perfect in order for your people to eat with other people. And Jesus responds by saying that that's not what makes you unclean. What makes you unclean is actually this. So that was the assumption. And Jesus corrects him and says this, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So Jesus specifically tells us that the problem is not the outside, the problem is the inside. So these laws and regulations, they don't, they don't make you impure. What makes you impure is your heart. And that was the point of the law, was to show you, you are the problem. It's not God, you are the problem. And it's our hearts. Uh, so as Christians, uh, when we come to Christ, we're given a new heart with a new nature. But we still war with our old nature and our old flesh and our members of our body. Um, and we fight our tendencies. We seek to be pure from sin and self. So what's really neat is in this text, what Peter's going to tell us, is in Christ, we've, given, we've been given a new heart, um, and some of these new implications are to love one another. And it's hard to do that from a heart that's not cleansed and not pure, and that's what Peter starts off with, which we're going to see in a second. So the only thing that can purify your heart to love Christ and to love others is the gospel. Uh, it saved you, and it is currently saving you now. Um, so the gospel purifies you, changes your heart, and it cleansed you once from sin, and continues to cleanse you as you live your life in uh, this sinful world. So... What Peter's going to do now is command us to love our brothers in Christ, and he's going to give us the implications of how we can do that. Um, so here's a quick little uh, story. It's kind of, if you get it, I hope it's funny. It's kind of the point. Uh, so two friends meet in a restaurant. They each order fish for lunch. Uh, soon the waiter brings back two pieces, two pieces of fish on one large dish. Uh, the men proceed to talk and engage, and one guy grabs the, the plate, and the fish are different. One's bigger, one's smaller. He takes the bigger one for himself, and gives the guy the smaller one. And the guy who gets the smaller one says, hey, what did you do that for? And they're gonna argue over it, and the point of the argument is the guy says this, look what you've done. You gave me the smaller piece, and you kept the big one for yourself. How could you do that? And his friend replied, well, if I were serving you, I would give you the bigger piece anyway. And the friend says, well, that's why I took it first. So the point was, is this man acted selfishly and said, I'll just take it first. I, I want the bigger piece for myself. You get the smaller one. And of course, the argument was, I was going to give the, the bigger piece anyway. The guy says, well, that's why I took it first. Kind of a dumb joke, but the point is, uh, the, the heart of our issue here is that we're selfish. We say, I want the bigger one. I take it. If you just watch kids for more than a few minutes, they always take the best toy. They hog it. They don't share. They make sure you know it's theirs. Uh, we are all born selfish, and we look out for number one. We look for ourselves. And it's kind of a helpful reminder to look back on uh, what, what we hear just in school and even just in our culture is the theory of evolution, which is really about being selfish. It's about the strong survive, the weak fail. Uh, you should look out for yourself. You should pass on your genes. You should succeed. You should put others down if that means that you get to rise up. We see that in business. We see that in school. We see that even in parenting. You know, Strong kids should be better. We should have the highest ones look better. Um, eat the weak. Remove them from the herd. Save your own skin. Um, that's kind of how we've been taught and kind of how, not just taught, but we actually think that way. We think, I should prevail. I'm more important than that guy is. I should prevail first. 
And it's an overwhelming majority of people agree with this. You know, I've never seen students object to this in class or teachers say, well, this isn't really right. So we all believe this. And what's sad is the Bible actually says that we're, we're correct in saying that, that we think that, that, that our thinking is, is following the sin, if I mean to say. So in Romans 3, it says we don't seek God. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says we are all lovers of self. So we think about all sin is really self-centered. Uh, it's all about us. We sin because we want to, because it, it, it brings forth our desires and our motives. Um, it's self-seeking. So we need to be saved from ourselves, um, not save ourselves. There's a difference there. We need to be saved from ourselves, not save ourselves. So if you look in verse 22, what Peter says first, because uh, that's a huge dilemma. So here's our hope. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So the first thing Peter tells us is our obedience to the truth or our faith in the truth of the gospel, our willingness to, to have it, to commit to it, uh, cleanse us from our sin. So our heart is now pure from sin. We've been purified, we've been disinfected from the penalty of sin in our lives. And what's interesting too is to note that this is the responsibility of the Christian to do this. You need to place your faith in Christ. You need to come to the gospel and trust in the gospel, trust in the work of Jesus. It is our duty, it is our responsibility to come to Christ. And what a statement to make in the area of suffering too. To say, in your suffering, trust that you've been cleansed. Don't fight back, don't swear, don't get angry, trust in the gospel. Uh, you've been, if you're a Christian, you've been saved from the penalty of sin. So we're called to keep pressing into that. Keep pressing to the grace that saved you. Keep pressing to the Son that brought you out. And then what's interesting is he, he gives us this gospel call, and here's what it calls you to do. So you look again in verse 22. So having purified your soul, so that's what the gospel does, and here's what it promotes you to do. Uh, for your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So what's neat is uh, when we are saved in Christ, we're given a new heart, and that should promote action. If you're a Christian and you have a new heart, it should be shown forth in what we do and how we act. And specifically, Peter's talking about how we love one another. Um, and if you know anything about Greek, which I know very little of, but you can look things up, uh, there's two different kinds of the word love used here. A lot of people know the words if you're kind of in the Christian realm. Uh, the first one is Philadelphia, which we know that's a town, it's a city. Uh, the city of brotherly, brotherly love, we call it, because that's what that means. It means brotherly love for a family member. Um, so we're called as a Christian to love one another in that way. We're called to love people as family, to hold them close. And then the next word for love, if you look, it says, love one another. So that's a command. We have to love one another. That's a command in the gospel. And that type of love is the word agape, which we've heard before, the word agape. And that's the self-giving love, the love that sacrifices itself for the good of others. So in Christ, you're supposed to have a love for one another, to lovingly serve and enjoy your brother and sister in Christ, but also you're commanded to give of yourselves. And what's really hard is we have a selfish heart. This is, this is a hard command. It's not hard, but it's, it's hard. In the sense, we're supposed to give of ourselves and it's only possible if, you, if Peter started off well by having a purified soul, by having the truth of the gospel lodged in us. And what's interesting as well is Jesus even says things like this too. Um, in Matthew chapter 5, we know the Sermon on the Mount very, very well. And Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. So they're almost the same language. For they shall see God. So when, when our hearts are pure by faith in Christ, by God's work in our lives, uh, we see God and our hearts are pure because of that. And the flip side is true. Since our hearts are pure, we can see God. So it kind of works in both ways. So therefore, by seeing Christ and by seeing what he's done for us, 
Um, our hearts are made clean. They're not defiled anymore. And therefore, we, we won't want to be selfish. We'll want to give. It's still hard. It's still a fight to give a certain amount or to want to give more or to give of our time when we feel like we need it. But in Christ, we have this desire to want to love our brother, to want to give of ourselves. And that's how we're called to be recognized here. This is what Peter's saying about Christians. You should be recognized by your love for one another. So we're to give of ourselves, just as our elder brother did, Jesus, who gave of ourselves for us. We give of ourselves as well. And what's funny is I think it's this command goes against so much uh, Christian thought in the world, or so-called Christian thought. There's a popular slogan going around uh, in Christian world, maybe not as much now, but it was for a while. Um, so here's what I've heard people say uh, to me, as a matter of fact. So they'll, they'll say something like this. I love Jesus, or they'll say, you know, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't really like organized church. I don't like to go. You know, I don't want to be in an organized spot. I want to worship on my own, not with people, whatever. Um, and they completely reject this command to love and serve your brothers. But friends, I want to urge you if, you, if you understand this statement that Peter just gave us, that flies right in the face of that theology. So Christian, you're called to love your brother and sister. And yeah, some are honoring. So are we. And we're so selfish to think that it's not, that it's not us, it's them. And what's interesting, we're called to love our church, to, to love our brothers and sisters in the family of God. And 1 John chapter 4 is a very convicting statement. Here's what John says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. My brother means Christian, right? He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So the question is, if we're a Christian and we don't love our brothers and sisters, who we do see physically and we can touch and speak with and have a relationship with personally, how can we love God who we have not seen? So Peter's charge to love our brothers, to love our sisters in Christ, is a command as a, that we're called to follow, even in suffering, even when it seems we want to recluse and be selfish and hide. We're called to love and to serve and to give of ourselves to one another. So the question is, Christian, do you love your church? Not just your church, but not just your building, but do you love the people in it? Do you want to serve them? Do you want to give of your time and your resources and yourself to them? Do you want to open up your home to them? Do you want to give them the bigger fish first instead of the smaller fish? Do you give of yourselves? We have a love for God. We should understand that that naturally overflows into our love for one another. And Jesus says that by that love, we'll be recognized as his disciples. And that's good news. So kind of the, here's where Peter goes off next. So maybe, maybe you wrestle with certain people in the church. I think all of us have done that and do that. I'd be lying if I say I didn't do that. And sometimes we, we, even, we even act like we, we believe evolution. We don't say it because we don't. If you're a Christian, usually you, you should reject that. We don't say we believe it, but oftentimes we show it that we do in a sense, by putting ourselves in front of other people. So we say, no, 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 I should go first, you should go second. Or, I'm more important, you can wait. So what's, what's the cure? What, how can we be cured from this disease? And Peter goes on to tell us that it's the new birth. Um, so the question is this, how could we love sinners that have no family relation to us all the time? How do we expect to give of ourselves to others that we don't even know that well? How do we expect to love God when we wake up tomorrow? What makes us think that we'll trust in Christ tomorrow, that we'll serve our church tomorrow? What's our hope to love God tomorrow, to love our friends tomorrow, to love our Christian brothers tomorrow? And in 1 Peter chapter 1, he's, this is the second time he's mentioned this, but our hope is the new birth in Christ. So all of us are fickle and we all change. Um, everything here on the earth will perish and fade, including ourselves. Everything changes from people uh, to places to preferences. Our emotions change. They go up and down. 
Uh, we're lazy, we're easily annoyed, we're quick to change, we are slow to want to get over things. We have all these problems that go along with us, so how do we expect to think that tomorrow morning we will love Jesus and love our brother still? How do we expect that we'll still be feeling the same way about Christ that we do right now, tomorrow? And if we think it's by our sheer, our sheer motive and our willpowers, our strong desire to love, friends, people, people fade constantly. We are perishable and everything is subject to change. But look in verse 23. Peter gives us the hope to follow this command. So we're commanded to love our brother earnestly. But what is our hope? What is the only way we can do this? And Peter says in verse 23, he says, since, so this command only happens if, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. There's so much in that verse. So what Peter reminds us in the very beginning of chapter 1, verse 3, was that God caused our new birth by His mercy. So He made you to be born again. He changed your heart. He removed your heart of stone, gave you heart of flesh, right? And He made the dead come alive. So by His eternal, imperishable, all-powerful will, He gave you life if you're a Christian. And that's not subject to change or to fade. So we're called again to press into it. So to continue to purify your soul, continue to press to the gospel, continue to look to Jesus for love and for grace. Keep cleansing yourself in this fountain of life that, you, that should be in you. If you're a Christian, it should be this new life in you. We're called to keep pressing into that through Christ. So Christian, if you have a desire for Jesus and you love him, and you want to obey, want to please him, we need to remember that this is the work of the Spirit in us. That's such good news. And there's a really simple illustration like, you know, how do you know physically that you're alive now? Well, you breathe. You can sense your breath. You're, you can see. You're not dead. You know you're alive. Same with being a Christian. How do you know that you're alive spiritually? You can breathe. You love Christ. You have a desire for Him. You love what He says. You love His Word. You want to seek to understand Him. And God makes us alive actually by His Word. If you look in the text we just read, He caused you to be born again. Not of perishable seed, so not of things that fade or change, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. So God caused you to be born again by His living Word. And what's great is this is, this is our only hope to love God and love others, is the life-giving and enduring Word of God. So God gives you life, and He causes it to be born again, and that won't fade. This life is enduring. It doesn't perish, it says here. It's living, it's abiding, it remains in you. So we have great hope to follow this command to love our brothers when we don't feel like it. Because this word remains in us. It's life-giving. So how can we who are dead to God so love Him and His people? The life-giving word of God. How can we who are fickle know what it means to love people and to love people tomorrow? Well, the word of God endures in us. It isn't phase, not subject to change. It remains the same, and that's the good news of the gospel. Because the work God has done keeps us, and it keeps within us, and it keeps pushing us. God's word truly does endure and is our only hope, is the new birth. So don't you see how Peter brings us back to our new, birth, our new birth? This is the second time he's gone to this. So it's so important that in suffering and in pain, we hope in our new birth, that we have been changed, we've been born again, that we see Christ, that we have him, that we love him, and that he is our treasure. It's our only hope in midst of suffering and pain and our only shot to have a life of obedience in Christ. Without the new birth, it's never going to happen. It's like the Pharisees. They keep putting on more laws to follow laws. And in Christ, we have the desire to obey. The laws fulfilled in Christ by our new birth. So God has saved you to love Him and to love our brothers, as Peter commanded. And we know that God's Word gives life and endures forever, as we just covered. But what is God's Word? It's kind of a question. We talk a lot about it. What is God's Word? Because think Peter specifically saying it's one thing, or it's a thing that we haven't actually seen yet. 
And what's great is Peter calls us to love our brothers in Christ, like I said. And that's a weighty command. It's good and it's hard, but it's beautiful and we, we endure with it and we love it. And Christians should be marked by their love for others. Um, and we can only do so because of our new birth, um, because of God's mercy. So what is the word of God? Look at verse 24, Peter impacts for us. So after saying, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So Peter points us to, first of all, um, all men. He says all flesh, all people, all humanity is like grass. And all its glory, all their accomplishments, all their good deeds, all their everything is like the glory of the flower of grass. So we think about it. Um, all of our accomplishments on earth, um, our moral choices we made, which are good things, um, all of our power, all of our wisdom, all of our wealth, our authority, our accomplishments, you name it, Pierre just collectively slammed it and called it grass. It's just that unimportant compared to eternity. It's it, it just going to fade like grass. Our grass gets mowed down out here by the lawnmower, just cuts it and it's gone. Our accomplishments are just like grass. They're not that worthy. They're not that spectacular in the eyes of Christ. So you name it, um, our accomplishments aren't that great and neither are we. We think we are these top dog people and we fade and we, we fade away. Although we preach all for wisdom and strength that we have ideas of and all of these uh, ideas that we cling on in the world, uh, they will fade and perish. And what's great is Peter gives us what won't fade. Look at verse 25. The word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what caused our new birth? It's not my attempt. It's not my great communication. It's not our friend's wisdom in a philosophy class. None of those things. What caused our change, what gave us new birth, is the good news that was preached to you. It's the gospel. Verse 25, And this word, this word of God, is the good news that was preached to you. So the life-giving word is the gospel. The word that endures forever is the gospel. The hope that we have to love our brothers is the gospel. The hope we have to love God is the gospel. I can't repeat that enough. The gospel is the power of God to change us, and it's the only power that it's the only hope that we can have. So we are selfish. We think much of ourselves all the time. Uh, we think that um, our sinful nature and deadness to God can be overcome by us, but we rest in the hope that God has done it and God's continuing to do it. So here's the gospel very quickly. So in, in the gospel, God makes God becomes a man in the person of Christ. He lived the perfect life in the place of man, fulfilled the will of God, and then on the cross, he was counted as the life that we actually lived in our place. So all of our shortcomings, all our failures, Jesus is imputed those. He is counted as doing those things, yet he did none. So that on the cross, in his death, we get his life and he gets our death. We exchange places uh, we get his credit, he gets our credit. We get his life, he gets our life. It's called the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin and wrath, we get his righteousness and his life. Then on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead to guarantee us our everlasting life, our forgiveness of sins, our adoption as sons, and our fullness of joy. So upon hearing this gospel, what God does, he grants you a new heart. He gives you repentance and faith to trust and love his son. And that love is also giving you to love others. That's what the cross has done for you. It gives you the ability to love people, to love his son. But how does that cause me to want to love my brother and sister? So I get it. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. He's great. But how should this help me love people I don't like? I don't like everyone in my church. People are just mean. I think all of us have, we've thought that we've been there before. 
I don't like, I don't like so-and-so, or I, I got burned by my friend, or past churches have done these things. We, we get hurt, so how do, we, how do we love those people? What do we do? And again, Peter points us to the remedy, which is the gospel. And we think about it in such a way, I think we'll, we'll be on the same page. So here's what God did. God gave his infinitely valuable son to us. So how could we not give of ourselves to others just in a small fraction of a way? How could we be so selfish to withhold our very fading glory self when God gave his infinite son to us? Jesus counted others as more important than himself when he walked the earth. He served others, right? If he counted others as more important at the time, how could we not do the same? Jesus did not come to be served, to take the bigger piece, but he came to serve, to give of himself, to push. So how can we not do the same to give of ourselves, to serve, not seek to be served? Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of, to be used on the earth, but he became a servant unto death on a cross, as Philippians 2 says. And our culture, and even the theory of evolution, like I mentioned a while ago, says put others down so you can rise up. You put them down and you step over. And what's interesting is in the gospel, Jesus, who is infinitely higher than us, puts himself down to bring us up. So how could we not do the same? How could we not go down for others who have maybe wronged us, but to do it to lift them up to put ourselves below them? And Jesus came again finally to serve and to die for his enemies. So how could we not serve and give of ourselves, especially of those in the household of God who are one with us in Christ? Jesus died for enemies. We could serve our friends. Jesus died for rebels. We could love our family in Christ. We could do that deeply. So the only remedy for us to love others, as Peter commanded here, is our new birth. And the only thing that causes our new birth is the good news that was preached to you is the gospel. So the only hope of our selfishness for our many sins and for our deadness to God and to his people is the life-giving and abiding word of God, which is the gospel. And I want to end with one verse of hope. And one that we can, I think, is the best one to kind of keep in the back of your mind for how we are to serve and love. Uh, it's very quick. It's 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. And not just in a, an emotional affection like, oh, you're so beautiful, but a self-giving of himself love. So we do that because Christ did it to us. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your son uh, who was offered to us. Um, God, you gave of yourself uh, to rescue us um, as rebels, um, as people who deserve your wrath. God, you, you did not withhold your wrath, but you poured it out on Jesus, who took our place. Jesus, we thank you for your death for us. Help us to uh, be empowered and encouraged by what you've done for us, to love one another, uh, to give of ourselves as you've given of yourself to us. Help us to love our, the family of God that you've put us in. Uh, where we are in our church, locally, wherever we are. Help us to serve faithfully um, and to love you above all else. And that will naturally overflow love for others. Help us to be patient. Help us to endure. Help us to be faithful to your word and to those in the household of God. We thank you for the adoption into your household and to have you as our father. And send your sons, let me pray. Amen.